Good morning, Lighthouse. My name is Denise Hayward. Our scripture today is Nehemiah 1, 1 through 11. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Halakiah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Thank you, Denise. Let's pray. Lord, this is, uh, this is so exciting to be on the, the front end of a study through a book of the Bible. And not just any book, but Lord, a book that I believe is so important for us at this time. And so, Lord, we're, we're asking you to, to bring out the truths, Lord, to help me and anyone else who may teach from, from this pulpit to, to bring out the truths that you've embedded in the scripture. For those truths set us free. They sanctify us. They shape us into the image of Christ. And so speak this morning through Nehemiah, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here we go. So 
we're, we're gonna kind of, we're gonna just have to do a little bit of nerdy uh, background work here this morning. So I, I hope some of you are like nerdy with me. <laughs> so, but we've gotta, we've gotta, before we get into the, the finer details and, you know, and looking at the trees and the bushes and all the stuff in the forest, we really, I think, wanna take, first of all, a look at the whole forest, the story behind the story. And um, as is our habit here at Lighthouse Church, we, uh, we typically will work our way through a book of the Bible sequentially, verse by verse, bit by bit, chapter by chapter. And so th there's a big advantage to doing it that way because uh, that way, any given verse or passage you come to, you come to it in its proper context which informs our understanding then. And so one of the most powerful interpretive tools in understanding the Bible is the context that surrounds any given verse or passage. I remember visiting a church in Southern California some years ago, probably a decade ago or, or more, um, but it was, it was my sister, was, was a part of this church, and it was a, we would call it a mega church, multiple campuses, thousands of people, and it was a kind of a Baptisty sort of a church, uh, Bible believing, and all all that kind of stuff. But they handed out outlines to everybody uh, before the message, and uh, and you know, and there was space. They they had the scripture references, the main points, and and so the pastor was going to give this five point. Uh, message on, I forget what the, the topic was, but they, they list the scriptures and they then leave you room to write notes. I thought, oh, that's pretty cool. So far, so good. So the pastor uh, comes out and, and he begins to teach and he announces, you know, five point on this subject and so on. And, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share the point with you and then I'm going to back it up with scripture and okay, let's go. And um, so he begins and he shares the first point and then he reads a scripture. And I'm sitting there going, you know what? I don't think that that's what that verse means. And, and the little voice of Anigo Montoya started going off in my head. <laughs> you keep saying that verse, but I do not think you mean what it means. So, and that happened on a couple of different occasions, and, and I thought, golly, that's, that's not okay. It's like not okay to do that, and I don't think he was maliciously doing it. I think he was just a little careless in putting together of his message. But the point is, one of the great advantages of going through a book is you come up to the verse, whatever it might be, in its natural habitat. You go, oh, okay, you live here. Now I can understand the depth of what, it's act, what it actually means. So we get the theme of the book, the, his, the historical context of the book, and then we move through a book, and as we move through the book, we get the flow of every passage, and it just makes more sense. So if you can pull verses out of their context. You guys know this classic example. Uh, Matthew 7, 1, judge not, lest you be judged, right? So even the most hardened heathens know this verse. <laughs> Everybody knows this verse. 
And, and it seems pretty straightforward, right? Judge not, lest you be judged. So, so if, if you judge people, then you're going to be judged. So you judging someone is going to sort of initiate judgment coming back on you. It seems to be saying that, right? So the wise person then will do everything they can to avoid judging anybody so that they can avoid being judged by anybody. Simple, except... For the following verses, the verses that come right after it. Jesus says, Matthew 7, 2, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye while there's this log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So everybody can quote verse one, not so many, they might recount some of that story about the log sticking out of somebody's face, but, but a speck in somebody's eye, that's, that's the judgment. I see a speck, I, there's something that's not right in your life that's clouding your vision. And so you're looking at a person's life and you're judging that they need some help. They need some correction. Now, they don't see it that way. However, you've got a big old tree trunk coming out of your face. And now you go over to the person with the speck in their eye and you try and get the speck out. And so... Jesus calls that hypocrisy. That's hypocrisy, that kind of judgment. Now, he, he doesn't say we shouldn't seek to remove a speck from a person's eye, which, which again, that requires the judgment part. You have to judge when there's a speck in a person's eye. He instead says, get the tree out of your face before so that you can see clearly and you'll be able to get the speck out of somebody else's eye. So it's a warning against hypocritical judgment. So in John 7, 24, Jesus said, judge with right judgment. So right judgment begins with our own life. It begins with repentance from our own sin. It begins with humility. And only then will we be able to help someone get a speck out of their eye, a problem, a sin in their life, to help them to get free from it. You think about it. It takes a lot of trust for someone to allow you or me to get a speck out of their eye, right? I mean, allow somebody to get this close to me and stick their finger in my eye or whatever. Like, I've got to trust them to, to not hurt me. And then if you're the one removing the speck, you've got to be super sensitive in how you do it, don't you? Well, you get the point. Context. Context is crucial. Any given passage. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We all know that that is a verse especially for athletes. Right? Tim Tebow has it under his eyes and... Steph Curry's got it on his shoes. It's for athletes. Because when it's the fourth quarter or whatever, and you need that last second three or the touchdown pass, you're going to do it through Christ who strengthens me. 
Now, I'm not discounting that Christ isn't strengthening those, those guys, but that is not what the verse is talking about. Not even close. You read the surrounding context, and it's speaking to contentment. That you can be content with nothing or with everything through Christ who strengthens you. It's a massive truth. You can be content. If you have Jesus, you can be content. All right. This is why we go through the books like this. But this morning, a little bit of foundation work, a little bit of background work. What is Nehemiah about anyway? If some of you are familiar with the book, probably many of you are not. Um, but the story of Nehemiah, it kind of focuses on a building project. And the building project is a wall. It's a wall surrounding Jerusalem. And how many of you know that in a fallen world, walls are sometimes necessary? Anybody? Right after our first parents sinned, uh, they were expelled from the garden and God built a wall of angels, of cherubim, to keep them from going back to the garden and to the tree of life. Walls are necessary in a fallen world. That's not a political statement, that's a biblical statement. So how many of you know that it wasn't man's idea to divide up humanity into different nations and cultures, but it was God's idea to do that? Anybody, you with me? Man, you guys are tough this morning. So that's not, a, that's not a political statement, that is a biblical statement. That's what the confusing of the languages was about at the Tower of Babel. The, the push for unity in the world and globalism and all that, that's not the spirit of God doing that, that's the Antichrist spirit doing that. Because we are followers of Jesus, we take our cues not from culture or not from political thought, but from the Bible. As we'll discover, Nehemiah served the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, before going to Jerusalem and then becoming governor there, a politician, for about 12 years. And faith and politics, they do intersect. It's, it's unavoidable but we will learn how to navigate those waters, those treacherous waters, especially in these days, as we go through this book. And God's people are people living in a fallen world while we wait for a new world where our King Jesus will rule and reign physically and eternally. But we're not there yet. So, how many, since I'm just gonna see if I can get a rise out of you people this morning, how many of you know that God, or rather that the church of God coming together to worship is important to God? Anybody? Okay, that's better. That people coming together like we are right now for the purpose of worshiping Him, hearing His word taught to us, praying for one another, and so on. Like that's a big deal to God. Well, Nehemiah chapter 1, 
verse one, it says, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel. Now this, this is in Persia, I, in uh, modern day Iran that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. So Nehemiah is serving Artaxerxes, the Persian king, and Nehemiah is, is in that court day after day, and he gets a letter from his brother delivered to him, his brother Hanani, who uh, you know, sends that letter 800 miles uh, from Jerusalem to Susa, and Hanani tells his brother that in Jerusalem, the remnant of God's people that is the, the true lovers of Jesus who long to worship the Lord together in the temple. They are dealing with grave trouble and they're dealing with shame. They long to worship the Lord in the temple, in their church we would say, like in the days of old, but they can't because the walls of the city are in ruins. They're in rubble and it's leaving them exposed to threats of violence and even death not being able to come together to worship God should and will trouble the remnant. If you are born again and have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, it'll bother you that churches are closed down. Dr. J. Vernon McGee used to say, there are two kinds of people in this world, the saints and the ain'ts. <laughs> the saints are people who realize that Jesus is Lord and there's no one and no authority higher than him. Therefore, gathering together to worship him is non-negotiable. It doesn't matter what the government says doesn't matter what the king or the president or the grand poobah says. Our King Jesus says, don't forsake the gathering of yourselves. Okay, I'm going to give you one big idea this morning. And this is the story behind the story. So what is the story of Nehemiah? Well, the story behind the story, we're gonna get into the particulars about the rebuilding of the wall and the reinstituting of worship and, and all the incredible stuff that happens in the book. But the story behind the story is that Nehemiah is a book about Jesus. <laughs> now, most of you know that because every book in the Bible connects to Jesus, right, in one way or another. You, you remember the story of the, the two disciples on the uh, Emmaus Road um, on that Sunday after, you know, Jesus had been crucified on Friday and, and, and now, you know, people are saying that the body's gone and there's even some crazy person that said they saw Jesus alive and, they, and they, these two disciples are talking about it, going, what is going on? This is crazy. And Jesus shows up and begins walking with them. They don't know it's Jesus. And so 
they're talking and, and Jesus goes, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, what do you think we're talking about? Are you like the only person, you know, in the, in the whole region that, that isn't talking or doesn't know about this? That the, the chief rulers and the, and the powerful religious people took our Lord Jesus, who was mighty in word and deed, and they, they delivered him up to the Romans to crucify him, and he was crucified, and, and, and then they laid him in a tomb, and, and now the tomb is empty. They did something with the body, but then there's some crazy fool saying that they saw him walking around. We don't know what to think. And Jesus says, you two little knuckleheads. You little numbskulls. Have you not believed what the prophets said? That the Son of Man would suffer and die? And it says then, I think it's uh, Luke 24, verse 27, then Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the Moses, that's the Pentateuch, that's the first five books of the Bible, Genesis and so on, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So Jesus gave those two numbskulls a Bible study in the Old Testament and showed them how it was all about him. And whoa, it blew, I would have, I wish they would have recorded that one and, uh, and we could have that Bible study given by Jesus. So how does Nehemiah connect to Jesus? Well, do you remember the story in, uh, in 2 Samuel 7, David, uh, and this is about, oh, 550 years or so prior to Nehemiah, David was in his beautiful palace. There, there were no wars being waged, no battles going on at that particular moment. David has some extra time to ponder. Uh, Israel had sort of reached the pinnacle of, of success and prosperity and peace and, and all of it. I mean, they were really at the pinnacle. And so David is looking around uh, his palace and the city of Jerusalem and so on. And he's thinking, man, I have this beautiful, this beautiful palace to live in, but God is still living in a tent. He's still camping in, a, in the tabernacle. So I want to build God a house that's, that's, that's worthy of who he is. And so he gets fired up. But he just thinks, man, this is, this is such a great idea. He tells the prophet Nathan about it. Nathan, I want to build God a house, man. Like it's going to be the most incredible house ever. And Nathan says, dude, go for it. That's a great idea. Nathan goes home later that day, and God speaks to him and says, Nathan, you spoke out of turn. David will not build me a house. David is a man with bloody hands. And so Nathan was rebuked and he had to go back to David and tell him. And, and so Nathan, uh, or rather Nathan went to David, told him the message, and then gave him the true message from the Lord, which was essentially, David, you want to build me a house? I haven't lived in a house since the day I, 
uh, have set my people free from Egypt and, and I've lived in a tent all this time. I haven't asked anyone for a house. And David, I took you out of the pasture tending your sheep and that you would be a prince over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone. I've cut off your enemies from before you. Here's the deal, David. You're not gonna build me a house. I'm gonna build you a house. What? That's right, David. I'm gonna build you a house. And so your son Solomon will build me a house, which is fine. But the greatest story is that I'm gonna build you a house. In 2 Samuel 7, 16, it says, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So I'm building you a house. You wanna build me a house, David? Sorry, can't do it. I'm gonna build you a house and your throne is gonna be established forever, as in without end. And so, an amazing promise, obviously, David's house and his kingdom, his throne, would go on forever according to God. This is known as the Davidic covenant. Now, when God says your house will go on forever, he's not speaking of David's palace, right? Uh, you know, they've excavated much of David's palace there in Jerusalem. It's an amazing place. But that's not what God's talking about. God was speaking of David's lineage, his lineage, his dynasty. And so Saul was a, was a one-off king right before David. He was the people's choice. His family would be cut off uh, from ruling immediately after his death. There was no lineage to follow. David was the true king whose lineage would bring forth the forever king who will sit on the throne and rule and reign over the kingdom forever. That's what God was promising David that day. God says to David, your son Solomon will build me a house, but I'm building you a house, a throne and a kingdom that'll stretch out into eternity through your lineage. You'll have a son that will occupy your throne forever. That son would arrive on Christmas Day, <laughs> the first one, and it would be a bumpy ride getting to Christmas Day from 1000 BC, 1000 years forward, there'd be a lot that would take place. Solomon took the throne after his dad. Times were prosperous. David had led the country to, its, as I said, its peak, its pinnacle. But Solomon was idolatrous, almost right out of the chute. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines, 300 lovers just on the side. And so many of his wives were foreigners, so he built them shrines, shrines for uh, Ashtoreth and Chemosh and Molech and so on, so that they could worship their idols. So they built these shrines, and there's ruins of those shrines. Um, it's, it's really, it's on the Mount of Olives uh, over off to the side, and it's known as the Mount of... Uh, shame or something like that. But he did that. He built these idolatrous shrines so that his foreign wives could worship their idols. And then after Solomon, his son Rehoboam would take the throne and the 10 northern tribes would split off from the two southern tribes because of Rehoboam's terrible leadership. 
and apostasy and idolatry and sin would mark the next 170 years or so, and it would culminate with the, Assy the Assyrian, here's where we're getting nerdy, the Assyrian conquest. So David, pinnacle of David, 170 years earlier, Solomon brings in idolatry, you know, and all, you know, perversity and all this stuff. And it ends up with bondage. Apostasy and idolatry have taken root in our nation like, like never before. We are in decline. And of course, there's always been idolatry and sin in our nation because our nation, like all nations, is made up of sinners, right? That's, that's all we've got to work with. So the difference is that in previous generations, sin and idolatry was practiced in secret. There was still a, a thing called shame back then. And, and we've undergone this cultural revolution that's so sweeping that not only is sin and idolatry not practiced in secret, it's practiced in broad daylight. It's paraded in the streets. It's infused into all of our entertainment from Disney to, the, it's everywhere. I mean, they, you know, the, they just ended the Burning Man uh, deal, which is, a, which is a pagan celebration and they have an orgy dome where they, everybody gets together and just has sex and it's just wild, you know, wild out there in the desert. And it's not done in secret. And if that weren't enough, it's demanded that everyone not merely tolerate the behavior, but we have to affirm it and codify it. And so, if you're a Christian who believes the Bible and God's, you know, rules and laws and so on, then, then it's being demanded of us that we call evil good even as those folks are calling what is truly good, namely faith and virtue and so on, they're calling that evil. That's what happened in Israel. The, the reaching of a certain point of prosperity and ease and comfort and then idolatry coming in and the foreign gods being embraced and tolerance and all the rest. The brutal and vicious Assyrians eventually would, uh, they destroyed 48 cities in Israel and, uh, and, and the, the Assyrians were, were brutal, man. They were the most vicious soldiers. They would often impale uh, the, the enemy on, on spears and their body, it would just go through their bodies and they hold them up and they would parade them as they would march, you know, I mean, just intense. And they had destroyed much of Israel and they had come down to one last city, guess which city that they left for the finale? Jerusalem. 
They surrounded Jerusalem. Hundreds of thousands of Assyrian soldiers surrounding Jerusalem. And they were in no hurry to go in and attack. Why? Because Jerusalem, at least to their eyes, didn't have a water source. Strange thing about uh, an ancient city not having a water source. That's not normal. You've got to build a city by a river. Jerusalem's up on a mountain, top of a mountain. And so we're, we can just wait them out. So they're just out there just kicking back and thinking that, man, those people are, are going to be just absolutely dehydrated and dying of, of thirst shortly. What they didn't know is, is that Hezekiah, some years earlier, had dug a tunnel that channeled a spring, the Gihon Spring, channeled it underneath the city wall of Jerusalem. So there was a fresh water source flowing into the river constantly. There's a psalm, Psalm 46, I think. There is a river that makes glad the city of God. So the Assyrians are out there, and we're going to crush Jerusalem and the people of God. By the way, the promise of Messiah was contained in Jerusalem at that point. Everybody who was a Jew had fled and, you know, had, had run, been run out of the, the country or had fled to Jerusalem as an exile. So the promise of Messiah was within those walls and God had given Hezekiah a promise that when you pray, listen, not, not an arrow is going to fly over these walls. Nobody's going to die here and I'll deliver you. Hezekiah prayed that night, woke up the next morning, and the angel of the Lord, you know this story, some of you, had killed how many Assyrians? 185,000 Assyrian soldiers were dead. And Sennacherib and the armies went back home with their tail between their legs. God delivered them. Listen, that Assyrian conquest was, yes, it was the enemy coming in, but it was God chastising his people as well for allowing the compromise and the idolatry to go on and the, the killing of babies and sacrifice, all the stuff that happened in their land. They were being chastised. Well, they were delivered, but a 100 years later or so, just a hundred years. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians now would invade Israel. They would take its people captive. They would destroy the temple, Solomon's temple, the one that, that David's boy eventually built, a glorious temple. And then God's people would live in captivity for 70 years or so until a Persian king named Cyrus, who was actually prophesied in the Bible by Isaiah, a pagan Persian king named Cyrus came into power, granted the Jews freedom to return back to their homeland and to rebuild the temple. To rebuild the temple. And so rebuild it they did. Zerubbabel. 
Zerubbabel led the charge to rebuild the temple. In five, here's where we're getting nerdy. In 538 BC, Zerubbabel was part of the first wave of, of Jewish um, exiles to go back to their homeland and return to Jerusalem. Zerubbabel was appointed governor of Judah, and right away he began rebuilding the temple with the help of Joshua the high priest. And it took Zerubbabel two years to lay the foundation for the temple. But then, construction of the temple was delayed for 17 years because of problems with the Samaritans and, and some fighting with the peoples uh, that were settled in that area. And then the Persian government took away any support that they were giving. And so for 17 years, nothing was happening. Finally, God sends Haggai the prophet, Zechariah the prophet to encourage and support Zerubbabel. You can read about that in Ezra chapter five. And the work of the second temple resumed four years later in 560. BC, the temple was completed and dedicated with great fanfare. That's Ezra chapter 6. Temple rebuilt. Awesome. Now, let's go from 516 BC forward about 70 years to 445 BC. And the walls of Jerusalem are laying in ruins. The city gates have been burned. It looks like a dump. The whole place is just in tatters. It's like many American cities today. It's just, it's gross. It's a dump. There was a small remnant of people who loved God and wanted to see worship restored and revival in the land and all of that. But most people were just mostly interested in their own homes that they would build out in the country and they would just, you know, build these lavish homes and so on. But then in 445 BC, Nehemiah, a Jew living in Persia, serving the Persian king Artaxerxes, got a letter from his brother Hanani, who lived in Jerusalem, telling him about the conditions. Physically, Jerusalem is a dump, but spiritually, God's people, man, they're in apostasy. There's nobody fired up for God, man. It's just a few of us. Though, as far as we know, Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem, 800 miles away at that, to that point in his life. But he gets this news from his brother and he is devastated by it. He's devastated by it. The physical condition, yes, it's so terrible that God's city, the city of God, Jerusalem, would be, would be just such a dump but it's even more tragic that the people of God would lack any zeal. That they would care more about their own homes than they would God's house. So he began to pray. Nehemiah began to pray. And he's gonna pray for four months. He's gonna fast and he's gonna pray. Now we'll get into that next week. But listen, when God moves, he moves through people. You understand that, right? That it's through people. He raises up leaders. 
The second temple was, was disappointing to so many people because it wasn't big and, and fancy like Solomon's, the first temple was. It, and it didn't have the Ark of the Covenant, uh, which was lost at that time. And, and there was no outpouring of the Spirit when the temple was dedicated either, like the first temple when God just moved so powerfully. And, and so, so, so the second, there was a lot of disappointment associated with this temple, and yet Haggai prophesied, Haggai 2.9, the latter glory of this house, meaning this second temple, shall be greater than the former. So the latter glory of this house, this second temple, this, this second-rate temple that you think is second-rate, what was he saying? What did that mean? Well, the astute Bible student of that day, the Old Testament Bible guy or gal, would realize that that was a messianic prophecy. The second temple may not have been as outwardly impressive as Solomon's temple, but one day the promised Messiah, the son of David, the, the eternal king, the God-man, Jesus Christ, would walk into that temple. And I think Nehemiah understood that. That this, this is not just some whatever religious building, you know, in some dumpy town. No, this is where Messiah is going to show up. We've got to get this wall built. We've got to get God's people fired back up. Malachi 3.1, Malachi prophesied, Behold, I send, God speaking, I send my messenger... He will prepare the way before me. Who's the messenger that God sent? John the Baptist. I will send my messenger before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, to his temple. The temple that Zerubbabel built, the temple that Nehemiah was building a wall around, that the Messiah, the messenger, not the messenger, but the Lord himself will come into, God himself is gonna show up and go into that temple. And he will come suddenly into it. In John chapter 2, just shortly after Jesus had done his initial miracle, the changing of water into wine, not just any wine, the best wine, and, and he then went down to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, and in the temple courts, he, found, he went into the temple courts and he found people selling cattle and sheep and doves and, and then other people at tables changing money. And he grabs these cords and he, he sort of ties them all together and he makes a whip out of them and he begins whipping uh, the people and overturning the tables and those who were selling all this stuff. He said, get out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a den of thieves. His disciples saw that and the scripture that uh, I think is from Zephaniah that the zeal for my father's house will consume me 
that popped into their minds about Jesus. This house that Nehemiah was committed to protecting because in his mind, he connected it to Jesus. Oh, didn't know the name Jesus in that way, but the Messiah, the God-man who would come. Listen, folks, the Bible is all about Jesus. Nehemiah is gonna speak powerfully to us concerning our zeal for God's house, for God's glory in the earth. He's gonna speak to us about our leadership skills, those of you who are leading your family or leading your business or leading the football team or whatever it is that you're, he's gonna hone in those abilities to motivate people, to help people to do what God has called them to do. It's gonna speak to us, Nehemiah is, about our marriages and our families that are so central to the plan of God in the earth. He's gonna speak to us about our vision and our goals and how to deal with adversity and how to deal with the enemy when we're attacked and so, and you will be. If you, you know, if you endeavor to do anything significant in life for the glory of God, you will be attacked. You will have adversity. You will go through stuff. In the world, you will have trouble, Jesus said, tribulation. How do we deal with that? We're gonna learn all of that and more in the book of Nehemiah. All right, let's pray. So Lord, thank you for the scripture and how God, it illuminates our, our minds. And I, Lord, I, I just can't help but think that, that Nehemiah just had such a moment when he received that letter that, that this was more than just information. But there was, a, there was an awakening in his heart and his mind where, where this information became a burden. It became something that, that became part of Nehemiah. And I believe that you want to do that in us, that you want to awaken us to certain needs that are in the world and that, that the spirit of God would come and, and awaken us. And maybe it's just, we're driving by a building that we've driven by a thousand times before. And maybe, maybe it's the Planned Parenthood building and we haven't been touched by the weight of the evil that's happening inside. But all of a sudden, you're going to awaken some of us to that. That there's little babies. And we thank you, God, for the wins that we've seen in regard to the laws about abortion. But, but yet, it's still happening. the place that you designed to be the safest place in the world, a mother's womb is still the most dangerous place in the world. 
And we know that that's not pleasing to you. Lord, whether it's, whether it's that issue, whether it's the issue of the people we work with and we haven't seen them with the eyes of Jesus, we've been just seen them as, as just kind of, oh, these people that bug me and I wish they would be, do this. I wish and we, Lord, you said, lift up your eyes to see. The fields are white under harvest. So, Lord, Lord, help us to see with your eyes and to think with your mind and to feel with your heart and to move with your spirit. We pray for our nation, Lord. God, would you send revival to our land? God, would you send revival to us, to this church, to my life? God, send revival. Lord, if the, the fire of our zeal for you has been, has been dying, has been flickering, Lord, would you, would you fan it back into a roaring flame? that zeal for you, for your name, for your house, for your church, would consume us like it did you. Thank you, God. Would you meet us at the table? If we have sins to confess, Lord, would you, would you just search us right now, Lord? If we have sinned in word or deed or attitude this past week or whenever, God, that we would humble ourselves and, and gladly just offer you the log that's in our eye so that we might be the kind of people that can help others who are struggling. Meet us at the table in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you're a Christian here this morning, you can make your way to one of the communion tables. And if you're not a Christian, I want to give you an opportunity to come to Christ right now. So if you're not a Christian, communion is not for you. But you can become a Christian here this morning by trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord. And if you would like to do that, Listen, it's essential. the essentials are simply this, that you believe that Jesus died for your sins on the cross and rose from the dead. And if you will confess him as Lord, you'll be saved. So if you're ready to do that, I want you to pray this prayer with me right now. Say, Lord Jesus, I come to you now as a sinner. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead. Come into my heart, take over my life. I give you control. In your name I pray, amen.